What's in that? What's in your drink? So I have um, courage. It's mm-hmm. it's a little bit of courage mixed with prickly pear margarita mix and just a lot of tequila. Tequila from El Chingon. <laughs> I got some El Chingon tequila. Well, I'm just doing that voice from that um, documentary now parody of uh, Vice, the Vice documentaries, and they're like, we're going to go out and find El Chingon. It's me and Fred Armisen, and we're out to find El Chingon. What does Chingon mean? It, it translates to the Chingon. <laughs> <laughs> is that spelled C-H-I-N-G-O-N? It is street slang for someone who is very good doing something. Oh, I'm El Chingon. Someone or something cool, awesome, very good. I'm El Chingon at making terrible drinks. Y'all want to start this thing? Let's do it! Let's start it. Holden? Yep. You had a prepared intro. Oh, yes, I did. Are we recording? Oh, yeah. Oh, we've been recording. We've been recording? Yeah, we got all that. (laughs) Let's do it. Cue the music. Wait, did y'all want me to do the spooky intro? Yeah, let's do do the spooky intro. You worked really hard on it. You looked proud of it. Welcome to the creepy spooky intro to Unseen Supreme, the non-essential movie podcast. I am the ghost of Holden Foster, who hosted the last really crappy episode of... No, I didn't. No, you did not. <laughs> oh, man. already botched it. Oh, oh well, it was good it, while it lasted. It was going to be cool, but... I don't think we should start it over. That's okay. Yeah, that was fine. Yeah, no, well, and we should probably explain your gaffe. My gaffe? You're the one that just happened. Oh, yeah. All right, so here's the thing. This, <laughs> we, I know that... A, as far as our listeners are concerned that we're only two episodes into this, we're already breaking our format because we decided that in honor of Halloween that we would have a very special Halloween episode where we would talk about a spooky movie for all of you spooky listeners. It'll really scare us. So on that note, we're going to break protocol a little bit. Uh, we will return <clears throat> next episode. Let me, yeah, let me cough into the microphone. <laughs> Sounds great for people. Uh, we will return next episode with, uh, I believe it was Holden's pick of Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. Before that, don't, we're gonna don't huh? don't give anybody any ideas as to what you think about it. Oh, okay, it's no, gonna it's be good. Palette. It's gonna be a good episode. It's a great episode. Since this is a special episode and it's our first special episode, uh, we elected to let me choose the movie, and I have chosen to go with the movie Poltergeist. Hold for applause. Have an applause button. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't know what happens over this house. I've never sensed anything like it. That thing is in there with my baby. What's happening? Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. Let's just get into it, yeah? We've got a lot to talk about in very little time. Now, why did I choose this movie, you may ask yourself. Why did you choose this movie? 
I chose this movie because my previous episode was all about nostalgia, like seeing something that I loved as a kid or something that was highly memorable from my youth. And so I decided to kind of keep going on that. And I chose Poltergeist because I don't think that there's another horror film that affected me as a kid as much as this movie did. So mm. this movie came out in uh, 82, I believe, 1982. Same as... I should know that. It's written in my notes, but... Mm-hmm. Same as uh, the other movie we watched, right? Yeah. Star Trek? As it so happens, yes. The Wrath of Khan came out in 1982. So did this movie. I guess that's just the age when I started to pay attention to things going on around me. So I'm fairly certain I did not see this movie in the theaters. I don't think our parents would have... My parents would have taken me to see this in the theater. But this movie was so mainstream. It was just... I felt like it was on TV all the time. It was always just showing up. And I, I think I watched it in pieces, you know, in the in the years after it came out in the theater. So 1982, I would have been five years old. Yeah. So I probably saw this movie when I was six, which in my opinion is probably much too young to watch this Good movie. grief. Six? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Okay. I never saw this movie start to finish, but if it was on, I knew what it was right away. And I knew that I had to leave the room or my parents sent me out of the room because like they knew it was too much for us and we just we shouldn't be watching it. And that's what caused that intrigue. I yeah, there was a, what's keeping me from seeing this movie. There was a place that we could hide on the stairs and still see the television, and our parents yes. wouldn't know that we were watching. And that's how mm-hmm. I essentially watched this movie in pieces until something freaked me out and I had to run upstairs, and then I would have nightmares for for weeks. I didn't have stairs in my house. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry to hear that. That's why scary movies just scared me. So this movie and another movie, Jaws, which I'm you've you've both seen, yeah. That was like one of the first scary movies that I saw. I couldn't finish it because I was so scared. But, yeah, uh, I mean, we're not really considering that a horror movie, are we? No, I think that's more adventure thriller, but it's still horrifying, especially to a six year old me. Um, we're probably not going to be talking about that movie in this podcast. You can bring it um, up, but that movie and this movie both. Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. movies uh, essentially ruined me <laughs> as a kid. Those were the things that I was scared of. It was essentially all the things that happened in this movie. So I didn't ever go to the beach and I spent a lot of time avoiding closets. Oh yeah. Oceans. No, thank you. All right. So this movie came out in 1982. It was directed by Toby Hooper. It was produced and written by Steven Spielberg. One of the few movies that he actually has a writing credit for. Toby Hooper didn't direct this movie. We'll get into that. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Continue. No, no problem. Um, so this is starring Joe Beth Williams, uh, Heather O'Rourke, O'Rourke, Heather of Rourke, uh, Craig T. Nelson, and the amazing Zelda Rubenstein. You all know her. You all love her. Tangina. Tangina. Speaking of taglines, I have the movie taglines right here. Do you want to hear them? All right. Let's put these to a vote. So there's actually seven. They Mm. couldn't decide, or maybe they just had that many different commercial campaigns. Okay. Probably. From a dimension beyond the living, a terror to scare you to death. Mm. Five out of 10. Mommy, daddy, where are you? Mm, Six. (laughs) I I would give that like a three out of 10. Okay. Not very descriptive. Its form is revealed, its focus is clear, and the games are over. Well, that is just untrue. Oh, zero. The form is revealed. There's no one singular form. Yeah. Uh, also, I 
watch the movie still don't really know <laughs> its focus. So. Thumbs down on that tagline, John. Yeah. All right, number four, probably the most iconic one from this movie. They're here. Short, right. sweep, nine out of ten. Yeah, fantastic. This one's pretty good, too. And I think this one's actually on the movie poster. It knows what scares you. Yeah, I like that one, too. I think it's actually a line from the movie, too. It knows what scares you? It does. Was that... Um, I think that was from Tangina. Tangina, yeah. All right, number six. Some things have to be believed to be seen. I mean, yeah, I like it, but I don't, I, I don't know if it works that well for this movie. And number seven, the first real ghost story. No. None exist before. <laughs> no ghost story. <laughs> what is this ghost story? What do you guys think? What was your kind of overall thoughts about Poltergeist? Um, I enjoyed it from a campy perspective. I'm not making eye contact with John. Um, a campy <laughs> perspective. I don't know that I would call it a good movie, but I was... Thoroughly entertained. Um, had a lot of laughs. All right. Well, Maddie laying it down. Holden. Well, I thought it was definitely fun. I'll agree with Maddie. I thought it was fun. I just think I would be watching this movie today for a different reason that it was probably made in 1982. This felt like a, yeah, like a, like a carnival, like an amusement park ride. More than it did like a suspenseful, gut-wrenching movie. Um, I guess today everything felt silly or tropey. Um, but I think that's just us, Maddie and I coming off of like the modern horror landscape. This really kind of almost feels like a kid's movie coming with that context. Um, though young Holden would definitely be terrified of this movie. The reason why I saved kind of the cultural context until after get your, your general opinion is because I do feel like this movie is a bit of like a time capsule movie. Okay. It, it does feel very much of its time and it definitely, since it's not dealing with like sci-fi or fantasy we get to see kind of into the lives of a family from 1982 right right out of the gate so before we get into that here's here's some cultural context that i pulled and i tried not to repeat myself from the wrath of khan episode because these both these movies are from the same year all right so 1982 uh the commodore 64 home computer is launched is that the first one yeah and this was also the year member from wrath of khan that the computer was named man of the year oh yeah oh, okay. <laughs> from time magazine and Wrath of Khan was the first movie to use a computer-generated graphic. CGI. CGI. Yeah, what would eventually become CGI. Um, Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off of a bat during a concert in Des Moines, Iowa, stirring th- up all kinds of controversy. I thought that was Kiss. Why did I think no. that was Kiss? Yeah. Ozzy Osbourne. The Late Night Show with David Letterman premieres. Uh, Bill Murray is the first guest. I love Letterman. Uh, Sally Ride becomes the first female astronaut. Ballet. The first successful heart transplant is performed in the U.S. Ronald Reagan announces his war on drugs. They're a a great band. (laughs) There are no drugs anymore. Prince William is born. Good old Bill. Uh, Which one is he? Is he the one that... He's the balding one. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. (laughs) That's the most important aspect. (laughs) That's how he wants to be known. The top grossing movies of this year, we kind of went over it, but I'll kind of rehash. It's uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial was number one. Rocky three was number two. On Golden Pond was number three. An Officer and a Gentleman, number four. Porky's, which surprised the heck out of me. Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan's after that. And then this movie in seventh place, Poltergeist. I really only saw one of those, but because of this podcast, I've seen three of those. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad I could help. This movie and E.T. came out a week apart. Crazy. Initially, Drew Barrymore was up for the role of Carrie Ann in Poltergeist. This is a quick interruption from management. 
The character's name is Carol Ann. Let's see how many times John makes this mistake. Lock in your guesses now and see if you're a wiener. Steven Spielberg directed E.T. produced this movie. He wanted to direct this movie, and initially he offered it to the he offered E.T. to the director Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper, being a horror director, he directed a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh mm-hmm. God! So okay. he went from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, an extremely subversive horror movie, to this, a family horror movie. I haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I'm more scared of that movie. I, yeah, I think I would be too. So it's quite a, it. quite an interesting jump, but I think it was. It's weird that he would offer him E.T., and I honestly can't picture anyone else directing E.T. other than Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I can't imagine that. It, it just it wouldn't even make sense. This so, is the part where you say, Maddie, have you seen E.T.? And I say, no. no? You haven't seen E.T.? I have not seen E.T. But the kid from Haunting of Hill House is the dad. And I know that because you said E.T. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we've gotten the pleasantries out of the way, let's get into this movie. All right. To me, this was the first mainstream horror film that I believe that I ever saw or that knew existed. And that's kind of also why it was my pick. Because uh, there are other movies that are scarier than this. Far yes. scarier. Uh, now, watching this as an adult, I think I can say that with, with some confidence. So, this being a horror movie, this being Halloween, as adults, mm-hmm. did this movie scare you? Patty, you're always going to go first after John asks a question. Okay, I love that. Um, no, it did not scare me. Uh, putting myself in the position of a child or of a child in the 80s, and even a child at my age, like in the early 2000s, yeah, it would have scared me. But no, as an adult, the only part that I think, I think, you know, I didn't want to look at, it was the clown. You know, I saw it coming. It's a clown. By now, you know, you know, clown equals bad news. Um, so that was the only moment... But again, I wasn't really scared by it. I was just... You were anticipating. I was anticipating it. Um, well, and they did set that up pretty early. Like that. Yeah. In the first act, they set up the clown. And just yeah. on its own, before it does anything, pretty terrifying looking. I think that was one of the, terrible. the best decisions they made in the whole movie, was no. to set that clown up and not have it pay off. Until the end. Yeah. I think that's what's great about the movie is... It's set up to a scare. I don't necessarily know if I was scared, but like the dread and the suspense of like what's coming does it for me. As far as like 80s horror goes, it was very well done, but I don't think it takes the case as being like a scary movie for me in 2020. But like, honestly, like I can't really speak to like scary movies because I'm coming from a perspective of like growing up, I didn't watch scary movies. That was not my thing. I was plagued with nightmares about it. I I stayed away from it because I knew it was going to ruin me. But like if this was the scariest movie around back then, like we've made improvements in the scary department, I think. Um, I think it's easy to predict events in this movie because we like unknowingly become familiar with all of like Maddie and I, we become familiar with all of these tropes watching modern horror. And then like we unawaringly we have a we, bias. Yeah. Because we, we know those tropes. And when we watch this movie, we don't realize where those tropes came from. Right. So this, this movie could kind of be seen in like, Almost in a historical context of like, oh hey, this is kind of when this when these when this formula started, when these tropes mm-hmm. were sort of developed. Because I, I don't think even for 1982 that it was the scariest movie. I just think that this was 
the most mainstream horror film ever produced at that time because like it made its way into the zeitgeist as a an Amblin picture. That's the, like that. That's the greatest thing to stick out is like earlier when you said this is a family horror movie. That's where I'm like, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, because it's not scary to the older audiences, but it does its job for the kids. And I think it centering itself on kids does a lot of good for this movie being scary. Yeah. And, like if you put this up against something like The Exorcist, which came out a couple a couple of years before this, it doesn't it doesn't even come close. I feel. The Exorcist was released in 1973, nine years before the release of Poltergeist. Not necessarily a couple of years before, as John has suggested. What a wiener. That movie would have never made its way into my house into my house as a kid. Right. No, no, no. This, this one, like, this one did, because it had Spielberg's name attached. It was PG. It just happened to be a genre, a horror genre film. Mm-hmm. The film has a cold open. It's not the inciting incident in the movie, but it's a it's a cold open where we have our first scare to, to let us know that, hey, we're watching a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we start with a station sign off and the Star Bangle Banner's playing. Good grief. It's pronounced the Star Spangled Banner. I'm curious to know, have y'all ever experienced that in, in the wild? I literally wrote down in my notes, what is this? I need to ask John because I have no idea what this is. I was like, what television are they watching? Like... Or is this the end? Is is Fox News going off? <laughs> um, but like, when that kept coming back up, I was like, "Do the ghosts like come in through the Star Spangled Banner program?" And like, that's how they get there. <laughs> is they like start playing the Star Spangled Banner, and you're supposed to be scared yeah, of the Star no, Spangled Banner? Not at all. But uh, so in 1982. It, they didn't have the same amount of television programming to do now. There's hundreds and hundreds of channels. There's content streaming 24 hours a day. There's thousands and thousands of shows. 1982, you had four channels, five channels. And they when they when they ran out of shows, the station signed off, and they just went to snow, TV mm. snow. Mm-hmm. That's also something that you don't have today either. Your television will go to blue to let you know yeah. that there's no image. The TV just would, if you had it turned on, to that station, it was still attached to that station. That station wasn't broadcast anything. It was pr- it was showing TV snow, and mm. then that sound, that <sighs> sound. Yeah. yeah. So, if you fall asleep and you wake up to that, I always thought it was it was it was a little unnerving in itself. Like it's kind of a weird thing. No, that would be that would be definitely scary. Like it immersing itself in this in this contemporary time of this is how this is how we watch television, and this is how things were like. It being realistic in that time period, I can see how that's scary. But being outside of that, I don't know. I don't know when to be scared because I don't understand. Like I'm just like, why are they on the wrong channel, or something like that. Wait, so we know I understand the snow, but what what is the Star Spangled Banner like sequence that played? Uh, so at the end, before before the station would sign off, they would play the Star Spangled Banner with shots of the American flag. And then that was just something that was common through all stations. It was something they just had ready to roll saying that the station is signing off. Good night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Cause typically people were in bed by, and this usually happened at midnight. It's oh. that's so early. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. If you're a night out, it's like you're, there's nothing to watch. There was just nothing to watch. There was no, no TV anymore. I feel like maybe the nineties to the early two thousands equivalent of this is watching Comedy Central until one in the morning and then the penis enlargement uh, <laughs> <laughs> infomercials come on 
And that's all that's on it's on Comedy kind of, Central right. in the middle of the night. Well, it's yeah, like adver- George Lopez. Wow. Advertisers <laughs> found a great way to just advertise their shitty products <laughs> at four in the morning for like stoners and, um, you know, people who were suffering from narco. No, the opposite of that. Tiny, <laughs> tiny PP syndrome. Well, that too, but couldn't sleep. Whatever. Insomnia. The, thank you. Oh, that's tiny PP syndrome. Oh, stop. <laughs> that has to be cut out. I'm keeping it. Oh, great. Great. I have no control in this editing situation and it's kind of scary. It stands for permanent That's the real pen. horror. Um, well, I have feelings about, and I don't want to jump the gun on talking about this, but I have feelings on the like TV technology thing. But again, don't let me jump. Yeah, we're going to actually get to that. but And I just want to go through a couple other things real fast. Okay. So that's the opening teaser. Um, and then the movie starts right away from the opening credit starts hitting us with all the symbolism that we're going to be seeing as, or that's going to be impacting us when we get into like the main part of the story, which technology is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Cause even from the opening title crawl, they start kind of just supplanting all this imagery in that feels like sort of getting us into this world and the kind of character development. But like, it's, I actually think it's very cleverly like kind of starting to subliminally sort of get you ready for the things that you're going to see. Subliminally, just show uh, Lay's products, potato chip bags, and <laughs> Cheetos. As soon as we see the title, you know it's it's showing the suburbs. It's letting mm-hmm. you know that this is all taking place in a in a in a place that should not be scary. This mm-hmm. is the suburbs. This is safe. And then we see all these little dead trees, sort of pockmarked amidst like trees that are alive. It's oh, clearly I don't not. That. It's clearly not the winter time. Nobody's wearing winter clothes, and there's just dead trees everywhere. Where is this? It's California. Just, is it Cal? I yeah. didn't even think about it being California because it like, just seemed like the like the rolling hills of the Midwest. Yeah, like it. It seemed like it was just like this could be anywhere. And it's supposed but to. Maybe it's supposed to point. represent everywhere. Okay, it's the suburbs right. are like very cookie cutter. They're very similar throughout the nation. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and just skip on because I really want to get into what you want to talk about. But um, let's talk about this symbolism. Um, mm-hmm. We do see dead trees. Uh, we get you know, hits with story elements pretty quickly, like involving life or death. Um, Right. We get to see remote controlled technology being controlled by humans and it kind of having like little like benign and funny kind of like nefarious purposes, like with the kids that try to knock the beer delivery guy off of his bike. And then the neighbors like clicking each other, you know, like the, the the two remote controls sort of controlling each neighbor's television. What's all, uh, what's up with, What's up with that? Is that a thing that happened? Because like, how is their technology better than my 4K smart TV? Like, I still have to put my remote up <laughs> to the synth. Like, I have to put it up against the television to turn the volume down on Sugar Rush. And <laughs> the mix is too it's loud on Sugar Rush. It's very loud. I don't even know what Sugar Rush is. It's a cake making show it's not on just Netflix. Cakes. I imagine that at the time, yeah, that probably could happen. But if the TVs were in close enough proximity, which it looked like they were very close to the neighbor's house, right? Um, I don't, I don't know from firsthand knowledge if that's something that happened. But I mean, yeah, the if the movie says it happened. It probably happened because movies. We'll, we'll just keep it in the universe. It's real in the universe. Were y'all taking notice of this stuff, or did it just kind of feel like you know we were just kind of getting into this story, and it was just sort of. Uh, plotting itself along like did you kind of pay any attention to some of these these details that sort of kind of kept popping up later i mean i i didn't notice the dead trees um 
I didn't either. But I did. I mean, they kind of hit you over the head with the technology thing, right? And right. then like the dead bird, it's like obviously the movie's going to start with the dead animal because it has to or but it wouldn't the, be a horror movie. This doesn't come full circle at all, but that bird thing brings religion into it. Curious. And Tangina talks about it later. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but there's like this religious thing that's like overhanging. And I don't know if it's ever really capitalized on, but they really do like make an effort to like show Carol Ann praying and the mom asking her to pray. And then the mom wears a cross over her neck. Yeah. And then Tangina talks about like, you have to, you have to, uh, throw out everything you know about your life and about your Christian beliefs. And I don't know. I just saw that as a thing. It might just be that the, the yeah, more they, immersed you are into like, oh, that's me. They're talking about my religion. Like, I'm Christian. I got to throw away my beliefs to perhaps, think about poltergeist happening in my house. It, it, it's potentially just something that could be a belief system in this family. I don't think it really goes too much into it. It's just... Uh. If that was part of your belief system, you may not believe that this stuff is happening, that, that it's real. Yeah. And when Tangina comes in, she's like, no, 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 this is real. So this may go against your beliefs or what you've been taught, but this is happening. She's just safeguarding herself from a Karen being like, that what you're doing is going against my religion. You can't make me do a seance in my house. Oh, oh, oh. Is that my Aunt Lisa calling? <laughs> I knew, I knew if I made a reference about, just just, just hang up on her, decline, she, decline, she decline. She must have you bugged. She does. I mean, Why I is she calling me? Also, I don't know how she got a live feed to our podcast. I don't Plot know twist. how she's just listening. Plot twist, Aunt Lisa is dead, and she's with us right oh. now. Oh, twist. it's a pull. Oh, that's it came a, full circle. That's why she's been calling. That's how she hears us. It's a Shyamalan twist. Oh, love it. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, did you have want to add any more on the technology stuff? Technology. Well, I just don't think. Okay, so they really hit us over the head with it in the beginning, right? Like, right. screwy technology. It's it's scary. It's scary, or it's not doing what we want it to do, or we don't know a lot about it. Yeah. Um. And I then, think I think that that's what you just said was the point. We don't know a lot about it. Yeah, but then there's. I feel like there's not a payoff. Like technology as a whole is kind of abandoned in the middle of Act Two. So I think once the gateway is opened, the movie doesn't become about the gateway anymore. I think it's a pretty clever plot device to say that when the signal goes off the air, what else could it potentially transmit? And it like tapping into another dimension or like the afterlife or whatever was a fairly common you know, story device at that point. And I think it that's kind of what they chose as the catalyst for those creatures to kind of enter into our world. I like I like that because even today... We have that. We have like the Zoom horror movies that came out during COVID. And we have the the FaceTime scary movies. We have the live stream scary movies. We have the film and everything with your DV camcorder movies. Right. I like that because it's still, it's talking about this bit of magic that we just take as reality. Like that we don't really question. We like somebody has made this. And I don't question how they made my iPhone. Yeah. Could you tell me how an iPhone works? Absolutely not. Yeah. Somebody could. And I probably someone who's listening probably could, you know, email us and tell it how it works. Don't tell and us. And if my phone starts doing something <laughs> really, really weird, even if I get a weird phone call from a f phone number I don't know, like that's still f 
it doesn't freak me out, but it's so, still just like heck. No, heck so when you watch this, fuzz, and we we kind of probably need to move on from this topic eventually, but when you watch this fuzz, like your your brain is trying to comp- it's trying to figure out these visual signals, right? So you mm-hmm. kind of start seeing images in the picture, like because mm-hmm. that's just how your brain works. It's trying to figure out your reality, mm. and so your mind would always like play tricks on you and like p- potentially see stuff that's in this this snow that doesn't really exist. Is that like, is that the catalyst for white noise? That horror yeah, movie? Absolutely. Is it just like That's, unabashedly ripping poltergeist? No, it's more about sound than, than visual. Uh, well, well, the well, format well. of this movie, the formula of this movie has been just duplicated ad nauseum between 1982 and now. Mm-hmm. There's been good examples of this formula and bad examples of the formula. I would say white noise is probably a bad example. I just remember it scaring me. Let's talk about the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. We get a call back to the opening teaser, right? So we, uh, through, through a series of events, the children get scared and they're sleeping with their parents. And then the, the station goes offline because this family sleeps with the TV on. That's what they do. It's an iconic line. Here's the deal, though. Could yeah. this have been avoided if the parents just saved electricity and turned the television off? <laughs> yeah, because then the, the ghosts wouldn't have gotten through. I think maybe, but also probably not because of something that Tangina says later about Carol Ann and how, how she's special. Well, And uh, also like where their house is. Right, where it's located. I mean, so they've really stacked the deck. Against this family. There's uh, so much going on. There's just <laughs> so, there's much, so there's a much. Lot. And especially when we get to the third act, like it's just a big pile on. It's yeah. All right. So uh, the first time we get to see, you know, the ghosts interacting with the family is this kitchen scene. And it's all fun and games until it isn't. Yeah. Cause of the ghost, what are the ghosts trying to scare them with their balancing skills? There's a scene where like mom fixes the chair. She walks into the kitchen and this is all in one take. And then she turns her back and then walks back in and the chairs have shifted. I would love to see the behind the scenes on that. So that scene showed up in, I showed up in countless movies, especially the sixth sense. Another movie ruined by talk and hype. Oh, come on. That movie was good. Ah, if you, if you didn't know the twist, that movie was pretty great. I did know the twist. That was the problem. That is the it problem. Ruined it. Ruined everything. Ruined everything. And that's the unfortunate about unfortunate thing about twist endings. If you know it, it makes the movie pointless. Sorry, y'all. So in this kitchen scene, you know, the dad comes home. Mom sends Carolyn across the floor. It does look kind of fun. I mean, I think that I would engage with that. Would <laughs> oh, I definitely would have done that. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah, I would have put so my. Weird. That's some. Weird. Stuff right there. At this point, Maddie, you would have been. We're leaving. Yeah, I think I think this movie sets these parents up as being so irresponsible. <laughs> okay. And this is only one of many examples that uh, we don't have to get into. No, no, no. Please, I, here, give I, me th- some examples because I actually quite, I actually really like these these parents. I think that Craig T. Nelson is great. I think that uh, Joe Beth Williams is great. I'm just going to say great a lot, but I, I really like their characters. When so, he becomes Mr. Incredible, you know, he's the best dad anyone could ask for. <laughs> so why, why don't you think, why do you think that they're irresponsible? I love a list. Number one. Number one. 
There's a scene where the kids are in bed, presumably asleep. They're not. But, um, you know, the parents are like smoking weed, which is fine. I have nothing wrong. I have no problem with that. Not with a parent doing it. But I just feel like in this time period, especially, you know, he's reading the Ronald Reagan book. So you assume, oh, this is some like conservative dude. And this is probably targeted towards conservative American families. Also, you mentioned that he started the war on drugs this year. Right. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it all comes full circle. Anyway. There's a reason. I think it just kind of. I feel like that scene is there for a reason. And I feel like I felt like that reason was to say they're kind of kooky and irresponsible with their children. And then there's the pedophile moment with the, um, the dad's employees like being absolutely obscene and harassing their teenage daughter who looks about 12. I know she was much older than that, but she looks very young. She doesn't look 12. She looks She looks pretty young. young. She Dominic I, I don't know why I needed to fight for how young <laughs> she looks. You got thin ice, buddy. It was oh. the number. Oh boy. Um anyway, and then the mom laughing. Like the way that I would have um absolutely murdered those men if that was my daughter, but no, right. the mom just like laughs at it. No, we are in agreement on that scene. That scene is Weird. This movie wouldn't have happened if the mother had gotten a new, had fired the crew to dig the pool and dig into the burial grounds, and it would have been saved if they had saved their electricity <laughs> and there turned their television I, off. So Dominic Dunn, the the girl who played the older sister, was 22 at the time, but she played. She's playing a 16 year old. It is really highly inappropriate for those workers to start catcalling her and all that stuff. It is. I don't think it's excusable. I just don't think, I think it's poorly written. Mm. I, th- I think the whole movie is poorly written, but. So my question to you would be, does a poorly written scene, you know, does that, does that set the tone for how you think about this character overall throughout the rest of the movie? Yes, because I have four things on this list, <laughs> not just that scene. You know, I, I feel like they put all this stuff in there for a reason. And to me, that reason is they're not the best parents. I don't, I mean, I think they, kind of redeem themselves you know i think one of the other the other thing on my list was the mom saying that's not good for you while carol ann's watching like the snow or whatever and she switches to a violent war movie and walks away (laughs) which obviously that was supposed to be like that was supposed to be saying something very clear about you know yeah i think that that's also an in joke or some sort of homage to something else i don't remember quite what it was. was also it's a it's a chance for spielberg to get in his wilhelm scream Right. That was definitely an opportune place for that. So to end out act one, we have the abduction of Carol Ann by the, as of now unforeseen monster, the unknown threat in the house. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of moving pieces here that get the family out of the house. We've been introduced to the dead tree early in the movie and is what happened with this tree, what you had pictured or did you foresee that kind of coming at all? mm, yes and no i mean obviously it's right next to the boy's window he's very scared of it so you know it's going to get him somehow i i so yeah i was thinking this tree is going to come alive or he's going to see a face on it or something like that i saw a face in it and i think that was one of the scariest parts of the movie because me as a kid like just the way that jaws influenced me to never get in the water again right this movie would have made six-year-old Holden never want to stand under or be near a tree again because that was 
that was freaky. And I think that that kind of speaks to the, the power of this movie or the, the thing that this movie kind of taps into. And it's sort of these universal fears, the, and especially from a children's point of view, like natural occurring things are, are scarier, have a terrifying quality about them. And yeah. then this, this is, this is sort of the manifestation of those fears that have, have they've come to life. Right. So now the demon is remote controlling the tree to, or at least that's my interpretation of it, because I don't think that that tree was alive, came alive to, it's kind of silly to even say, but to eat the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it has a mouth. It does. Yeah. It eats him. It totally starts to eat him. It's crazy, but it does get the family out of the house. And so it could accomplish its main goal, which is uh, abducting Carol Ann or bringing her into his realm. Right. Was the goal to get both of the kids? I don't think so. I don't think so because it it, it was talking to Carol Ann, the beast. The beast is attracted to Carol Ann. Okay. Because tropes. Anyways, okay. we'll talk about tropes later. Um, <laughs> tropes. Did you find the, how this scene wrapped up was a kind of a deus ex machina? How do you mean? Like, it the, just, like, disappearing? Right. So the tree gets sucked up into a tornado. Right. That kind of seemingly comes out. We know there's a storm coming, but in that storm is a tornado, which sucks the tree up and gets rid of all evidence that anything occurred. Yeah. Can we define for our listeners and me what Deus <laughs> Ex Machina means? God by machine. Yeah. So I did, when, that when, does no, when, <laughs> no work for me. When 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 your main characters are up against some sort of force and like the only way out is for something like a out natural occurrence, control. something out of their control comes along to save them. It's just conveniently, it's it's like, a, yeah. So it's usually seen as kind of a it's kind of stigmatized. It's so the kinda, so the storm that the kid was always scared of winds up being his saving grace, essentially. But more so that the tree they they are able to pull him from the tree, but then the tree itself gets sucked into the tornado. The only thing which seems to have been affected by the tornado in this thing, in in the whole neighborhood, was just that one tree. So the tornado came out of nowhere to suck the tree up, and it stops the action dead. So Screw this tree in particular. Right. So um, now that kind of occurrence also plays double duty because it sort of gets rid of this tree, and who's going to believe in that a tree tried to eat their kid, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we're following sort of the, the, the standard horror sort of formula... Act two is when we call in the specialists because we, we can't solve this ourselves. So this is when we usually see people like Dr. Lesh and her crew show up in these films. Like we have the paranormal investigators because it's you can't the, call the cops. What can the cops do? Yeah. And, it, and the layman's need some sort of easily accessible explanation for why this is happening. Right. More technology comes in the house where they're bringing in all this camera equipment to try to try to see if they can capture the ghost, you know, how does, how does, how do the poltergeists not get in through that technology? I think that's just a capturing technology, not a broadcasting technology. So it, it's very, I just made that up. I have no idea. Don't poke at the holes. Sorry. So there's other TVs in the house. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get into the technology, but it starts kind of, you know, fucking with the skeptic though. Like, it bites that on. was the best part of the whole movie. Okay. Why is that? Um, the practical effects of him tearing out his face. That was awesome. <laughs> it was so 80s. So and terribly great. So yeah. terribly great. I wanted more of that. I wanted more of the crawling steak. I'm pretty sure that's where my, when I was six, that's where my brain just kind of shut down. Yeah. Well, there's like, there's 
in mainstream movies, there are like, there's one instance where I remember being horrified by something, and it's with two Indiana Jones movies. One was oh, that makes sense. One was the 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 uh, Ark of the Covenant. What's that one? Yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, excuse me. And the Nazis' faces melting? Yeah, the face melting. That horrified me. Well, it's Spielberg has a thing with face melting. This yeah. Is this, this is the second instance that's showed up. And so that's a great practical effect that I think was played well to young audiences because I would have been horrified. Oh yeah. It's, it wrecked me, but like watching it now, it's so incredibly it's so, silly. It's so it's, silly. And so the head I love is it. not even like mounted. Right. So you can like see it <laughs> wobbling. as like the guy, the guy is obviously blindly trying to feel and pick at the right parts of the guy's face. Fun, but fun fact that was, those were Steven Spielberg's hands. No way. <laughs> of yeah. course it is. I, I actually thought it was funny that it's the middle of the night, everyone's sleeping, and that dude decides to go in and he pulls out a steak. Like, he's going to grill a steak. Also, they just have, like, a steak sitting, laying in there. Sitting just in the fridge. steak just sitting there. Also, yeah. that guy's a dick. Yeah, who who's going to fry a steak at midnight? Who is fiddling through there to try and get somebody's food, let alone, are you going to cook a steak at in the morning right the cold chicken leg i can i can understand but not the steak you better be cooking it for everyone said my <laughs> first grade teacher when i brought gum to class <laughs> <laughs> all right so this this act slows way down like this movie is in no hurry to begin with because it does spend a lot of time sort of developing characters but this act does get fairly slow. So I, I want to take this opportunity to kind of like talk about some other things as opposed to like just the story. We'll come back to it, but uh, okay. this movie is called Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Is this movie in your mind, is it a haunting or is it actually a poltergeist based on the definition in the movie? So as well as I can remember, she, she basically says a haunting is about the location, right? Like a right. house is haunted. Yeah. That's what makes me feel like by that definition, this would be a haunting because it's the ground that they're on is why they're being haunted, right? Right. And we haven't talked about that yet, but it definitely comes into play at the end. Right. Um, so the, the house is built on a on a burial ground. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> you left the bodies. Holden, what do you think? I wrote a haunting too. Because a poltergeist, she said, is directed at a singular person, right? Oh, right. but Carol Ann. Carol Ann. But if it were just directed at Carol Ann, would the rest of the family be experiencing it? They would They would be along for the ride, yes. She is directly experiencing it. They are indirectly experiencing it. But until, I don't think that's very indirect. Well, until the end where it very much starts affecting everybody. Bite somebody. I, I feel like it's both. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is kind of like, it's just so much, so much is going on. Like it's a haunting and it's a, it's a poltergeist and it's, it's everything. There's a lot going on, but I think it is pretty deft at sort of reining it all in. Would you agree? Or I don't know. I, no. I don't know. I think it's a haunting because spoilers at the end, the house is the thing that gets enveloped. It's not just the girl. It's that everyone's life is affected by this thing. And it's not just in the house. It's affected by the swimming pool people. Sorry that I'm jumping ahead. 
swimming pool skeletons and all of that, the tree and the boy getting eaten. Like, I don't think it's, it's out to get one set. Well, I don't know. I spiraled myself up a, <laughs> up a storm. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so it's in this second act that we get a glimpse into kind of how the effects of this time kind of maybe fall apart a little bit. So <laughs> when we get to see the kid's room for the first time after the abduction, we've gone away from the practical effects, which I think to this point have been fairly pretty effective. The scariest thing is Hulk on a horse. Do you feel that the effects overall in this movie, do they hold up for you when you kind of put it up against modern horror films? No. They they don't hold up, but am I entertained and convinced that this is happening in the world of Poltergeist? Yeah. So I don't think the compositing effects hold up, but I I do still think that the... The practical effects, they kind of hold for me, like especially when they amplify the TV snow with like strobe lights. And then when we get into an occur- the, the final occurrence later on when the strobe lights are just kind of going nuts and it's nothing but wind and fog. Lots and- of strobe. Yeah. Lots of wind. I, I will say I was fairly surprised at the lamp screwing into itself. Right. I, I didn't think I was going to be, but I was like, they had CGI then? Yeah, that's not CGI. It's it's just compositing. It's green green, green screen compositing. So that's them filming like a the end of a lamp on like a a drill bit, and they're screwing it in themselves. Yeah, well, or just kind of how they would do the same way that they did like the Tie Fighters and all the stuff in Star Wars and the a miniature. Yeah, miniatures against green screen, sort of, and then superimposed in in into the into the print. I liked the lamp screwing back in. I liked Hulk on a horse. <laughs> and I did like the protractor. Yeah. Well, I liked those. The those those were good by me. It's definitely the moment in the past. movie where I go, okay, this is this is an 80s film. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts. About oh it. no, for me it was the acting. <laughs> <laughs> Act two slows way down, and I don't think it really picks back up until we're introduced to Tangina. Oh, Zelda Rubenstein. What are your thoughts on her? What are you iconic? I mean, she's the one who gives us all of the, I mean, what information we have about why this is happening, who's doing it, why Carol Ann is important, how to get Carol Ann out. Any any bit of exposition is provided by her. Yeah, she's the medium that shows up to sort of save the day or to not only to explain to us kind of and to the characters what's happening, but to create the solution that sort of retrieves the daughter. Well, and she has like almost a responsibility of providing more fright within the things that she's describing, because I feel like we, Tangina provides an an immense amount of insight into the world. Carol Ann is stuck in right. All the exposition of what's going on is brought to light by her. Tangina is there to explain, right. What's happening to Carol Ann? And I, even though a lot of her stuff is expository, I think it's delivered in such an amazing way. I think she's the perfect choice for this character. Oh, I think mm-hmm. that it's great to have like, it's it's great to have the parents trying to decide what's going on, and then they're like, I don't know. Let's get the ghost adventurers in, and let's have them record everything and try and give us explanation as to what's happening. And then they don't know. Right. So here comes Tangina. Well, and especially because they they make a point to say, like, 
even when we're introduced to these characters, their only experience with this type of thing is like seeing a car roll across a tabletop over a seven-hour period. Toy. Yeah, mm-hmm. very small matchbox vehicle just rolled seven feet across a linoleum surface. The duration of the event was seven hours. Seven hours for what? For the vehicle to complete the distance. Of course, this would never register on the naked eye, but I have it recorded on time-lapse camera. It's fantastic. It's very clear they have no experience with this. Yes. So they're kind of along for the ride as much as the family is. So then they bring in the expert expert to help resolve the issue. I want a whole movie just about her. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. I, Speaking to your point of what, what I think you were saying, Holden, I think that that speaks to the strength of this movie. Because when we, when, when we discover that they can go into the other realm and retrieve things, things would come out on the other side through the portal in the living room downstairs. They decide to send the mom through. Mm -hmm. And what I think is the strength of this whole scene is that it's completely played outside of that realm. We never get to see it. It's not defined. Mm. We still don't know truly what it is. And I think that that was a really smart choice. Would you agree? I think so. I wrote that these revelations that Tangina is bringing should have been experienced earlier to show like, and shown through character interaction instead of dialogue. Like, cause I just remember that whole scene of just like a push in on Tangina of her talking about what Caroline is going through. You're talking about like a show don't tell. Yeah. I mean, but that's again, that's me coming from horror movie tropes. Of modern horror. Sure, but Maddie as an actor. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to sink your teeth into her monologue there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it should have been rested on the shoulders of the actress who played Tangina, though. Really? What? I don't she's know. great. I think she's great. I, I think she has one note, and it is that you're the the spiritualist person and that you're gonna say something in a slightly southern accent. And be shorter than everyone else. It all and adds to make the it feel like otherworldly. Yeah, it all adds to like the weirdness or the odd like offness. I think that you are kind of viewing this as like a trope, right? This character is a trope. This is like the tropiest of all tropes as far as characters are concerned. And maybe that that's kind of does that kind of hurt it for you as a performance? Yeah, like I I I think if I were to watch this movie again, I would have wanted to see inside what Carol, I think that's the whole experience that would have made it more scary was seeing Carol and Anne's experience. And I also think that that's what brought the 2015 film down in other people's eyes was because right. it wanted to see inside of well, that. Yeah. And that's where I would disagree with you hundred okay. percent. And okay. I think it's just because I think that this is the more effective route, right? Because when we do have the remake and this movie does have a remake, Mm-hmm. And with some really good actors. Sam Rockwell is one of my favorites. He's fantastic. But the movie is does not work. Mm-hmm. And especially their version of this scene where they send a modern like remote controlled drone into the other world. Mm-hmm. And it's I really subscribe to the idea of not showing the monster is more powerful than showing the monster. I yeah. think that this is a lesson that Spielberg learned on Jaws, you yes. know, and not by design. But because they had a shark that wouldn't work. The remote, mm-hmm. their, their mechanical shark just wouldn't work and it sunk to the bottom of the ocean. 
and it was causing all sorts of problems. So they had to like be creative on how they showed the presence of the shark, but not the shark itself. And I think it's what makes that movie a masterpiece. I agree. So he took that lesson and applied it here. We don't go in with the mom. We don't see what all happens in there. Uh, We see the effects of it outside. And I think that that works way better because they tried to do it in the 2016 version and it doesn't work at all. In my opinion, I could, I mean, was it just like not scary? It just didn't. Yeah. It just was kind of like once you define it or once you show the monster or the thing, like it loses its power. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what happened there. Yeah. Not showing it here in this instance, in this scene itself, which I think is one of the best scenes in the movie. That's why it still feels very powerful to me and it still works. But I don't think that modern movies will, will show that that amount of restraint. Continuing on with Tangina in this scene, you know, we've had this discussion about the light. Don't go into the light. The light's bad, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, we have told, they've told Carol Ann to run towards the light. Right. But to get away from the the evil presence that's sort of lording over her in that in that realm. Is the light representing death? I think that's like the other side. I think this whole other realm is played as limbo. The mm-hmm. light is the afterlife. Afterlife is bad for people. Because if you go into the afterlife, then you're dead. They don't want Carolyn to be dead. So they tell her to go to the light because the demon is scared of the light. Then it gets a little confusing. And I'm kind of wanting to get your take on this. Because Tangina then at some point shifts gears. And she starts telling everyone, children, go into the light, right? Yeah, I had no, like, I was like, is all of a sudden our saving grace that's telling us everything to do all of a sudden turning on us for a greater scheme to, like, get all of these other spirits out? That was my question, was just like... I don't know. It does make you wonder because she, you know, once the mom and Carol Ann are out through the other side of the portal in the house, she's like, this house is clean. And spoiler alert, it's not. So it kind of calls into question her expertise, right? I actually have a very succinct idea about this scene. Okay. What is it? Um, So I think you're right. And it is confusing, which is why one of the characters in the scene gets confused. And this is what causes him to trip up. And then he sees the demon. He lets go of the rope. He wasn't supposed to let go. Right. Mm. But keep in mind, Tangina is a medium. She is connected to this world that in a way that, the rest of the characters and that we would not be connected. So she also mentions, they also mentioned that there's all of these spirits that are existing in this space Mm -hmm. and they're all controlled by this force, right? This force that's also controlling Carol Ann or keeping Carol Ann away from the family. When they start announcing Carol Ann to go to the light, I imagine that all of these other spirits start following Carol Ann. They tell Carol Ann to stop because they don't want her to go into the afterlife and and die, go Mm -hmm. into death. However, Tangina wants to release all of these other spirits to the afterlife that have been controlled by this evil presence. Right. So they are now free by this evil presence, and she's announcing to all the other spirits in the house, now's your chance. Go to the light. Go to the afterworld. 
Now's your chance to get away from the spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what confuses the dad. But she's actually in that moment trying to help right. all of the trapped souls in, in that space. Right. That's, that's my take on it. That's, that's what I was thinking while watching, too. I wasn't thinking that while watching. No. No. But I understand. Your explanation makes me understand that. So Carolyn and the mom pop out of the ceiling. They go into the tub. They're all covered in whatever that goo, goo. is. And they're back. And Tangina says, this house is clean. This house is clean. Okay, since we're on Tangina, and we're running out of time, but I kind of want to real quickly go over this because, like, again, this movie is highly formulaic, and it sort of defines all these horror tropes that have been just sort of passed down through the past couple decades, right? Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, this is it's probably not the beginning of these tropes, but they definitely kind of shove all of them in here, right? Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a couple of them before. What what are some of your favorite horror tropes from this movie? Mm, I mean, the clown was a pretty clear one from the beginning. We kind of touched on that. Creepy clown. Creepy clown. And also just like the, the payoff not coming until the end. Right. Definitely, yeah, right away, here's this creepy blonde girl who's like very pretty and angelic looking, but also like... Something's not right. Creepy kid trope. Mm-hmm. And I think it does fall under that trip. I don't think she's necessarily creepy, but you know. But in the in the beginning, I was like, something's yeah, up. She's doing creepy stuff. She's yes. doing stuff that's not typical, normal kid stuff. So right. Yeah, I mean, anytime she was like looking towards the television, I was my hands were creeping up to cover my eyes <laughs> to be like, oh. Holden, did you notice any other ones? No, I mean, like, the tree did something for me. I don't know if that's a trope, yep, but, like, tree. Um, the clown also was just, like, super, super effective. So I think the, I think the, the biggest ones are, you know, Tangina, obviously, to me, feels like a trope. We have the, the medium coming in, the expert, you know, that's not the typical authority figure coming in to save the day. This shows up time after time in, these, in horror films. And the burial ground thing, I right. think it was like one of the earliest things. I'm like, Maddie, that's true with my elbow. I was like, it's a burial ground. All right. So typically a, Na- a Native American burial ground. This is not a Native American burial ground, but it is a burial ground. Mm-hmm. Um, they just moved the hedgestones uh, and left all the bodies. And now all those bodies are apparently just located under their house. Um, so we also have not, you know, not going to the police, not leaving as soon as the bad stuff happens. Yeah, at some point I was like, Maddie, how long has it been since Carol Ann disappeared? How long has it been? No one's been contacted contacted until now. We also have, despite what you see with your own eyes, like some further skepticism of everything that's happening. We have creepy kid, creepy clown, creepy tree we've already discussed. We have skunk stripes. The mom's hair turns yes, gray. Yes, turns gray. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a big think one. about that. We've yeah. got the vert. just time passed. She no. saw some scary, so her hair turned white. Yeah. Uh, we have the vertigo effect with the hallway that stretches out. Yeah. That happens in Act 3. That was great. Yeah. I loved that. Uh, we have a couple of Chekhov guns moments. We have the swimming pool where they keep referencing, and it turns out that they, not Carol Ann ends up in it, but the mom does. And the light, like speaking about the light, like going into the light, I feel like that that's also kind of a trope That's as well. a big trope, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's played to great effect in this, like in, especially with all the lighting effects is just it's front and center in this movie. Okay. So what, what worked 
for you and what doesn't work for you or or if anything doesn't work for you on this la- last attack on the family in the, in the in the demons or the the dark forces last attempt to recapture carolan i mean to me it's just like again they're just piling it all on there's you know there's the skeletons there's the invisible forces almost molesting the mom in an uncomfortable way yeah not it, that yeah it was very much played as a as a sexual assault yes it was um and then you have like the Weird dog looking it, ghost. It has the MGM roar. They're using the MGM <laughs> roar. When when the, the one outside the door with the mom. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it's what you saw. I was like, are they just like they got a re they got a DJ back there just remixing the MGM awesome take? This movie also sends the dad and the older daughter away. Or the last act of the movie. Do you think that that affects or un- does it undercut the movie in any way? Um, I mean, I guess the dad not being there means like the protector, quote unquote, is gone. So that does add an element of it's just this mom, this frail woman and her baby children. But that in itself is also, you know, very much a horror trope, like the final woman or like the yeah. um, final girls. Final girl. Yeah. Yeah. Final girl. Thank you. Even though they're going after the daughter, she very much kind of falls into that role. Right. So this is kind of the demon's last ditch effort of the family. You've kind of talked about this before. You think they're kind of just piling on at this point, like because it's no longer just the one entity. It now seems to be everything yeah, else. Yeah, it's kind of like the rules of this world or of the movie are kind of foggy to me. You know, like they they inhabit things or control things, but they also. I don't know, like the skeletons kind of like banging us over the head with the. You know, this is where a dead body... I mean, I enjoyed the skeletons, but yeah, I don't know. And then the tentacles, it was just... Yeah. So I think, I do think that it's all still one monster and that the the skeletons were buried under the house and that's sort of the jumping off point of these souls being trapped, right? Right. So now it's manipulating and shoving all this stuff to the surface that was already there. Right. It's still pulling the strings. It just has kind of a lot of tools at, at its disposal. Yeah. I I really think it's piling on. Because I wrote that it's almost inconsistent. I don't know if there's like a thorough line there that makes it inconsistent. Yeah. But like there's just so much going on that I lose my ADD ass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it loses attention on who is supposed to be the main scary person. And I just wrote in here that I was like, uh, yes, it's piling on. Yes, it's becoming almost inconsistent. What I would have loved is if they stuck to a grounded approach about the family being haunted by the actual people their house sits atop instead of turning into this like skeleton dog roaring MGM monster thing and like a big skull jumping out and like this big intestinal thing that's going around and this ghost girl, whatever, and the movement of the chairs. You're talking like, about the, the closet turning into a... a- Deep, a giant throat with tentacles. Yeah, exactly. Like the Sarlacc pit in her closet. Yeah, Sarlacc pit in her closet. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, this might also just be my bias coming off of right. watching Haunted of the Haunting of Hills House. Well, let's. That show is extremely. That is a very modern and it's a very sophisticated movie. The Haunting of Hill House is, in fact, a TV show and not a movie. Thank you for your patience. 
Right. This movie is not as nowhere near as sophisticated as that. But I don't think that that means that it's doesn't hold up well to me. But no. my question to you is: at this point, doesn't this go back to your earlier comment about how this is? A thrill ride. So now the haunted house is coming alive. It's a haunted house thrill ride to the end of the movie. Yeah. And that's kind of what it becomes. Mm -hmm. But you, you're saying that you feel that that is at to the detriment of the movie. Well, I forget that at the end of the day, this is a PG rated horror movie. Right. And when you say all of that again, I begin to be like, oh, well, yeah, it should fit to those standards. It should fit to that criteria that like, I'm a six-year-old and I should be able to walk into the theater and I should be able to watch this with my family. Right. It comes back to that thing about me sticking to that family horror thing is that like this works on the family horror spectrum because it's digestible by everyone in the family Yeah, and is maybe more horrific to the young chillins Right. And the, and it could be very much me giving this whole scene a pass because of my my effect, affectation. Is that the right word to yeah. this movie? I could be justifying it and trying to convince you to like something that just didn't, you know, really land with you. And that we could just also kind of leave it at that. But despite everything this house is doing to keep them from leaving, they are still able to leave. And so in the last ditch effort, the demon decides to suck the house into <laughs> Into, into the ether. So yeah. how cool was that shot? I think that's Yeah, that cool. was a cool shot. Like technically, yeah. I think that's great. And I haven't had a chance to jump on the like there's a reason why that that housing developer is standing in front of that house watching that home whittle away into nothing. Right. Well, he has to he has to sit there and look at what he did. Right. Yeah, because Steven Spielberg has a love-hate relationship with capitalism. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. Before we jump into that, I do think it it's really more simple than that. He he just he wants this guy to take his medicine because it was his decision to not move the bodies. Right. right? And this is this is the result of that. Here's and take what your medicine. Type of, what type of decision? Craig is T. That? Nelson grabs him by the shoulder, and in the in the in the most in the biggest bit of overacting in this movie. <laughs> son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones. You only moved the headstones. I did. Okay. I did say this to Holden when we were watching it. And it's the scene where, yes, that man is explaining. Yes, this this land did used to be a um, a burial ground. But don't you love it? Isn't it great living here? You know? Yeah. Um, I, I turned to him and I said, this movie's about capitalism. <laughs> and it was her not me who began my thesis about spielberg having a love-hate relationship with oh you said uh jaws wasn't going to come back into this but i do believe jaws has uh because these are the only early spielberg movies that i've seen to make this comment <laughs> so but, two, hold on you're saying that this is what he carries into every movie but only based on two spielberg movies yeah because in jaws the <laughs> the entire problem that the two characters, you know, have to deal with is that this one guy who owns the beaches was like, everybody come on in. The water's fine. And there's a loose giant shark eating everybody. And he's disregarding all of that information to make more money. You know what that and makes me think of? Coronavirus. The pandemic. 
it, it, Jaws is a symbol of that. So is it? And then okay, the, the real bad guy who's revealed here is that this this whole problem wouldn't have happened if this housing developer hadn't. You can hear my voice echoing it's through this entire garage so how loud I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> but you, this housing developer comes in and he decides, eh, get rid of these graves. I'm going to build houses over here. And he's like, uh, it'll cost a lot of money uh, to actually dig out the excavate the bodies out. Uh, we can move the headstones for $10. Uh, but if you want the bodies moved, it'll be $2,000. And he's like, well, I need to save a buck. I got to turn mama over tomorrow. And so, <laughs> and so he saves a quick buck and he got, he has this salesman over here getting people to buy all of these suburban homes that are built on burial grounds. Like it comes back to the root of this problem is based in some guy trying to save a quarter. But is that capitalism or is that just, is that's that just capitalism. the problem with money in general? That's a, one in the same. <laughs> one in the same. Not this to, is more of an accurate um, de-threading than Little Rascals was. I think, I think there is a theme in some in some Spielberg movies that deal with hubris, right? So that deal with like uh, the repercussions of hubris. Mm-hmm. And I think that this and and in and Jaws, the mayor in Jaws, is that is that same way. And I. I I say that, but also at the same time, like I realize, like it was funny to me because at the end when this movie was over, I was like, "Well, I just watched a watched a movie where like a lot of the problems were sourced from this guy making a decision to build these houses on burial grounds." Oh, all of them. But yeah. also, we're seeing Lay's bags and Cheetos bags and the Holiday Inn and Sony. I wrote all of these down and. All of these downs in minutes. Right. Well, product placement isn't. Oh, I know. I know that. They they learned that, especially from ET with Reese's Pieces. But uh, perfect. So yeah, that does exist. In fact, we didn't talk about it earlier, but there's a weird jump cut in the kitchen scene early on that just leaves the scene in the middle of someone talking mm-hmm. and cuts to the next scene. And why do they do that? Because someone says you didn't make dinner. The mom says we'll just get Pizza Hut. Yeah. Well. Apparently the dad's reaction to everything that's happening is like, I hate pizza hut. Like he can't think of what to say or do. So he says, I hate pizza hut. And because pizza hut was a sponsor, they didn't want to disparage pizza hut. So they just cut it. It's very jarring and weird. And very indicative. But they couldn't leave it. They had to leave the next bit in because you're like, why didn't they just take out the next bit? Because that sets up the idea that, they believe that no one's going to believe them because they're t- they're asking their neighbors like, "Have you been experiencing that anything?" That was weird? the weirdest scene. And yeah, they're getting bitten by mosquitoes, and it's really freaking weird. Right? And they're like laughing. I was like, they're on drugs. I don't what understand. is happening? Mosquito ever suck on you, son? I don't know, Dad. I don't know. He's fine. So that could have been cut out, but just that whole part, right? But I felt like they had to leave it in because that was sort of the only thing they had to let us, the audience, know that this family thinks that nobody will believe them. They can't go to the authorities. They can't they can't tell anyone this, except for the paranoia. Does their the argument scares. also get invalidated by the fact that they're smoking pot on no. the bed? No, I think that's, at this point, that's... Uh, that's where I kept going back, like, they're not going to believe them. They know that they're smoking pot up in their bedroom. <laughs> they're not going to believe them. they're fixated on this. Okay, here's smoke. the thing. I just think she's Neither tripping. of us are anti-pot. <laughs> 
it's just when I think of the 80s and that conservative, those conservative values and this being a family movie, I was like, what? That's so surprising. And then the add in to that shortly after is this weird scene where they're like laughing inexplicably, inexplicably. Like I, yeah, I I don't think it's, I think, I think it might just be a poorly directed scene. And that makes sense now. And that falls on the shoulders of Toby. Right. That's the, that's that's the part that Toby Hooper directed. (laughs) That's the one scene he directed. Uh, uh, Toby, you're going to make a smoke break. Uh, (laughs) Come out here and uh, direct yourself. And then they look at it in the day. It's like, what the hell did you do? Um, uh, Mr. Nelson, can you uh, jump up on up and down on the bed. Oh boy. Who are you? I think Holden's gone. I think Holden's gone to the bad place. It's <laughs> let's let's talk some trivia, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So we're not gonna have a game this time. We're we're going a little bit longer than we have been in the past. We're we're not doing our game because like I said earlier, next episode we're gonna jump back into our, our regularly scheduled programming with Holden talking about under the silver lake. Just watch it. So no 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 game today. No game. So trivia. Um, okay. So Joe Beth, uh, Little Miss Short Pants Williams, was hesitant about shooting the swimming pool scene because of the large amount of electrical equipment positioned over and around the pool. In order to comfort her, Steven Spielberg crawled in the pool with her and to shoot the scene. Spielberg then told her, like, now if a light falls in, we'll both fry. Here's why I bring this up. Maddie. Yes. As an actress. Yes. How do you feel about that? Okay. So you mentioned in your notes the Twilight Zone accident. Right. This is this is a year before three people are decapitated by a helicopter accident in a very similar pool situation. Or in, in a stunt gone wrong. Water, yeah. In water, a uh, helicopter crashes on three actors, Vic, Vic Morrow and two children actors, and killing them on the spot. What's crazy about this is that yesterday... I was telling Holden about this story. I forget. It wasn't anything. We weren't talking about Poltergeist or the podcast at all. It just got brought up and I was talking about it. You're like, um, I think I have a problem. I have a moral curiosity, morbid, oh yes, morbid, morbid curiosity. Yeah. And like trauma porn, right? Like right. I have watched this YouTube video because it's I've like, seen it too. It's, it's really, it's, it's tough. Horrifying. Yeah. And you know, the two child actors were um, like under the table, undocumented kids. And the fact that no one's been held accountable for this just makes me sick. So, yes, as an I, and Vic Morrow, like right before shooting this scene where it didn't happened, didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do and it. And was talked into it. And he was talked into it. Yeah. And he died. I, I did find that it was interesting. She felt uncomfortable about it, and then Spielberg jumped in with her to to make her feel good because this uh, it was very close to that incident. I will say, I think I think that's a thing that as women we're kind of conditioned speaking as a female actor. I think we are kind of conditioned to do what we're asked because there are a billion of us waiting, you know, not that, not that she would have been replaced or anything bad would have happened if she hadn't, you know, gotten in the pool, but we are conditioned to feel and are told that we have, we just have to do it. You know, we have to do it safety aside. So yeah, it makes me sad. And then speaking further on this, on this particular scene in general, they used real human skeletons in the swimming pool scene and they did not tell her until after it was shot. I've, I've always heard that story. Yeah. She apparently didn't have a problem with it, according to her Reddit AMA. 
And I will always pull my sources from. And apparently okay. this was common practice. Like it was too yeah. expensive to build replica skeletons, so they just use real cadavers. It's so weird. I mean, sure, I guess. I mean, Also, you- who do you talk to? Who do you talk to to get those? Right. <laughs> Is it a guy with a big just coat on? He's like... And oh. get some cadavers for you. And like, like, do they come skin on and you have to, oh. um, well, you know, Un- unpeeled corpses. <laughs> oh, wow. Peel them yourself. <laughs> so this is not the only incident that happened, um, on this movie. Um, when Robbie was being strangled by the clown arms, the oh, arms yeah. became extremely tight and he screamed, I can't breathe. The director and Steven Spielberg thought that the boy was just kind of ad-libbing and acting until he started turning purple, and, and that's when they ran over to save him from being strangled to death. I really hope and think that something like that wouldn't happen today. You know, that they would have, they would have had a conversation. Yeah. Okay, if this starts to get too intense, you know, especially being a child, like if this starts to get too intense for you, if you really can't breathe, you know, say blah, 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 have a safety word. Right. Um, that's the hard line with CGI and practical effects. Cause I think a lot of us moviegoers or our, uh, us film geeks like the thought of having practical effects in your movies. But also I don't think we think about the safety of said practical effects. And like when I think about 2020 movies being made and how that effect would be done, I would think computers, kids fine. He has to act with a tennis ball or right. whatever the hell. And then I think about how 80s movies are made then. And I think like, oh, they had to innovate how they thought this was going to be done. Right. And they had to do it in camera. Well, and I think that that's why, and, I, and this is not speaking to child actors, but I think that's why Tom Cruise is so adamant about doing these practical stunts. There's something about them that reads more true than, you know, effects that happen on green screen with wire work. Yeah. Cause um, you got to hide your, you got to, if you're doing all that twirling and falling down a sca- staircase, you see all those guys in the sixties having to hide their face while falling down a flight of stairs. Right. Now, I'm not saying that children should be doing this, but I think that's kind of why practical effects are still around or stunt effects are still around in that to that capacity, because there's something a little bit that reads to our human brains as a little bit more tangible and real than when when it's all just effects. We can we we can we know it. I also think it's romanticized the idea of doing your own stunts. You know, like growing up wanting to be an actress, I was always like, oh, it'd be so cool to like do my own stunts and like sword fight or ride a horse, you know, and that's. You know, getting the the great shot is kind of placed, you know, of more importance than someone's safety. When in reality, that's ludicrous, I think. Right. No, it has to be safe. Because insurance. Anyways. Yeah. Um, it all comes back to capitalism. Listen. Right, sure. <laughs> the, the bottom line, the dollar. Cheetos, Frito-Lay. We talked that Dominic Dunn, unfortunately, wasn't really given much to do in this movie. Um it was kind of sidelined, and then some of the choices were really unfortunate. But yeah, was her existence to be like, Mom, or Carol, right. like you're praying over a bird, and then gone. A lot has been said about that this movie is cursed. I don't really want to talk about that, because I don't believe it's a cursed movie. I just I think, think some so really unfortunate things have happened to the people who have been involved in this movie. Yeah, Dominic Dunn. And both her and Heather O'Rourke, the girl that played Carol Ann, uh, are both buried in the same cemetery, Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Uh, Shortly after this movie came out uh, in October, Dunn was strangled by her ex-boyfriend in the driveway 
of her West Hollywood home. Uh, and she died shortly thereafter at the age of 22. And then on February 1st, um, six years later, during the making of Poltergeist 3, the, the actress that played Carol Ann, Heather O'Rourke, died of intestinal stenosis at the age of 12. So died very young. Yeah. And then a lot has kind of gone on that this movie is cursed because of the skeletons, and that's why everyone um, died and bad things happened. But I think that's all just kind of silly and that the, those are just tragic events. Yeah. I agree. Toby Hooper was hired uh, for this movie because Steven Spielberg was extremely impressed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I do feel that this movie is diet horror as opposed to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is probably a lot more intense. Yeah. Uh, film was originally given an R rating. They were able to successfully get it down to a PG because PG-13 did not exist at this time. This I, movie is uh, was singularly responsible for the PG-13 rating to come about. I want to know what what was in there that made it R. Because um, there was a significant amount of blood on the little boy's face. Right. Like, I want to know. I, I imagine it's just the intensity of some of those scenes. Like the guy ripping his face off, like some yeah. of the scares. I think... The language. It's, it's definitely too intense for a a general audience, right? You can totally understand underwear. why. Yeah, can totally understand why PG thirteen came about. I think that's better suited for that. I mean, I definitely was too young to see this, and then again, this movie also sort of kickstarted my lifelong obsession with horror films because I, I was I'm constantly chasing the thrill of being scared. Like I was as a kid, yeah. uh, and so it's it's rare that that happens. But when it does, like those, that rush comes back to you. So, <laughs> happy Halloween, Maddie. Happy Halloween, Holden, and to all of you in Listenerville, have an amazing Halloween. I don't want to say that. Stay safe. Have a happy. Have a. Have a. <laughs> Uh, stay how safe. Are, how stay are, spooky. Also, how the hell are you celebrating Halloween? Um, you best not be taking your children out. You better be dressing up in your living room. That's exactly for your what you and I are doing. Other. Yeah. I didn't get my costume. We're, we're, we're gonna. We're, I bought a six foot pole with a basket, <laughs> and then Tiffany's gonna have gloves, and she's gonna load the basket, and I'm gonna like offerings plate style, like hand it over <laughs> to the kid. <laughs> Say happy Halloween and enjoy your candy. Take all, take all the candy. Take it all. Take everything in the basket. Uh, thank you. And then like the basket comes back, and then they go on there. We don't have to get near them. We don't have to look at them. I'm incorporating <laughs> a. I'm incorporating a zipline system. See that too. That's how you do it. That's how you socially distance Halloween. No. Bas- basket hits them in you the get, face. You get clever and you figure it out. Everyone just chill out. You gonna, eat all oh, the candy yourself. Just chill out. Do it. Buy candy. Don't give it away. Give it to your stomach. That's my plan. To maldigest. Hey, everybody. Stay safe. Stay spooky. Don't get the Rona. <laughs> Rono? Rona! Rolo? Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. We wish you a merry one. I miss you already. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>